All right, Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Our focus for this morning will be verses 6 through 11. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience or completion or endurance and patience, experience or character and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good one, a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. I'll stop there. So last week, like I said, we started to look at this third major section in Paul's letter to the Romans after the introduction that you get in Romans 1, 1 through 17. You get that large section from 118 to 320 where he, you see that God's righteousness is revealed against sinners. And then in Romans 321 to 425, you see God's righteousness revealed uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we're going to look in this next major section, which is going to start in Romans 5 and take us all the way to the end of Romans 8, in which we see hope as a result of the righteousness that we have by faith. Then last week we looked at the first five verses of Romans 5, and we saw some of the benefits that we have because we are justified by grace through faith. Being justified through faith, Paul tells us, We now have peace with God. So the long war with God is over. Our enmity has been uh, changed into friendship. Peace with God is the first benefit of having been justified by faith. And now because of the peace that we have with God, we now also have access to him by faith. So this peace has allowed us now to come into God's presence because we are clothed in the righteousness of God. We now can come into his holy presence We do not have to fear his judgment. We do not have to fear the fact that God is a consuming fire because we are clothed. We are are protected by the righteousness of Christ. So this peace provides access where before we were separated from God due to our sin. Now we have now having been justified, we have access and that access typically is through prayer. You know, uh, Hebrews four says that we can come boldly before God's throne of grace to receive grace in our time of need. Then thirdly, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, We saw that that word rejoice is really the word to boast. So whereas before, you you know, the Jews would boast in their circumcision. They would boast in the fact that they have the law. They would boast in in their pedigree. They would boast in their performance. Now we are told don't boast in those things. We can boast in the fact that we are justified by grace through faith. And now we have the hope or the boast of the glory of God to come. So we boast not in ourselves or anything we've done, but in all of the benefits we have from God through justification. 
But we also saw that not only is our boasting in our future glory, but we can also boast in our tribulations now. Our tribulations now lose their sting because we have been justified by grace through faith. All of the troubles we go through, are they have a purpose in mind because God is using these, these trials, he's using these tribulations to, to hone us, to refine us, to remove the impurities as gold is, is refined in a furnace. You remove the dross and you get a pure product. That's what the, the, the tribulations in our life are. They produce character, they produce patient endurance, and then they produce this hope that we have in them. And then finally, we saw that the evidence of this hope, the assurance of this hope is found in the fact that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. It is poured out. And we talked about how that is sort of a lavish pouring out. It is not miserly. It is not meager. It is not something teeny tiny that you have to worry about running out at the end of the month. It is a lavish, infinite, abundant supply of the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The Holy Spirit we talked about as the earnest, the guarantee, the, the, the seal of the promises of God that he has given to us. So as we come now to the section we're going to look at this morning, Romans 5, 6 through 11, we're going to examine the quality and the nature of this love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts, that has been poured out in our hearts. So in Romans 5, 6 through 8, we're going to see the amazing incomprehensible love of God for us that we that he has for us in in Christ okay the love that God has for us as his children in Christ and then in Romans 5 9 through 11 we're going to see how this love of God for us saves us from his wrath so again now let us look at Romans 5 6 through 8 as we see God's amazing love so if you want to know what God's love for us, it looks like. If you want to know how much God loves us, look no further than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. Look again at verse 6 where he says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now here the word, that the, the first word in that verse, that word for, takes us back to what he said in verse 5, where he says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And now he's going to show us why hope does not disappoint. Why does hope not disappoint? Why does the hope that we have not let us down? Because God, the love of God, has been poured out into our hearts. Now, to further support this line of reasoning that hope does not disappoint, Paul is going to show us that this love of God that was poured out into our hearts wasn't done when we were at our best. Okay, It was done when we were at our worst. Christ died for the ungodly. And that's us, by the way. Right before coming to faith in Christ, we were the ungodly. We were the ones who were under God's wrath. We were under the weight of the law. We were... uh, Children of wrath. That's how we were born. Born by nature, children of wrath. But the fact that Christ died for us, he didn't wait for us to clean up our act. He didn't wait for us to be good people. He didn't wait until we repented of our sins. He didn't wait until after we'd done so many, many good works. No, he died for us 
when we were yet without strength. Just to get uh, sort of across this, this notion of what we have in our Bibles here as yet without strength. Other translations say, when we were still helpless, Christ died for us. When we were still powerless, Christ died for us. When we were still weak, Christ died for us. So here's another one I like. When we were utterly helpless, Christ died for us. You get the point? (laughs) Christ died for us when we were at our worst. And that word there, without strength, asthenes, means weak, feeble, infirm, all these things. In other words, it suggests that we were not able to do anything for ourselves. We were completely without power. We were completely without ability. We were completely without hope. Now, how many people here know the old saying, God helps those who help themselves? Okay. Where is that found? Is it in the Bible? (laughs) Not if this verse has anything to say. It was Benjamin Franklin who came up with that. God helps those who help themselves. Yet here we see the exact opposite in verse 6, right? God helps those who can't help themselves. That's what the truth of Scripture says. Now notice also it was done in due time, katechiron, due time, or literally according to the time. Now the word there for time, which is kairos, doesn't mean clock time. So it doesn't mean like at 9.46 in the morning on October 4th, Christ died for us. That's not the kind of time he's talking about. This is more of a qualitative sense of time, is in the right time or the proper time. An example, okay, farmers... Do you harvest at a certain set date and time? Is it, do you say, okay, on September 23rd at 1044 a.m., harvest starts. That's when harvest time is, right? No, I'm seeing a lot of head shaking. I'm seeing Mark like, are you crazy? (laughs) No, you harvest when the grain is ready, okay? When it's ready, when it's the right time to harvest, you harvest. There's no set, there's a, you, you can kind of gauge it within a certain time frame, but you just know, you know when it's ready to go and then you do it. That's what, that's what we see here. It is not a set date and time. It is just the right time. Christ came at the right time. He came at the proper time. He came in due time. It was the right time for Christ to die for the ungodly. I've mentioned this verse many times before, but Galatians 4.4, 4, one of my favorite verses, when the fullness of time had come, Christ or God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the fullness of time, there, that's the, you know, the time is, is overflowingly ready now for Christ to come. The time of Christ is the time of fulfillment. All of the plans and purposes of God come to fruition now because he's here. Now, further word on Christ died for the ungodly. That phrase there, for the ungodly denotes the idea of in behalf of or for the sake of, okay? So it's not, it's, you could properly say Christ died in behalf of the ungodly or Christ died for the sake of the ungodly. We've talked about this before, but in other words, we're talking about substitutionary atonement. Christ died in the place of the ungodly. His death was an atonement for the ungodly. His death paid the sins for 
the ungodly. So we, where we should have died, where we should have been the ones that have paid the penalty for our sin, Christ stepped in our place. He was in behalf of us. He was there in our place. If you remember a few weeks back when we looked at Romans 3, 21 through 26, we, did, we talked a lot about substitutionary atonement. We talked a lot about that word you see there, propitiation, which is an appeasement of the wrath of God. It is a payment of the sin debt. The same thing here is being mentioned. Christ died in the place of as a substitute for the ungodly. And again, in case you're wondering, that's us, right? We're the ungodly. Now, Paul is going to expand on this idea just a little bit more in verses 7 and 8 where he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here we see a contrast between the amazing and incomprehensible love of God and the kind of love that human beings express. Okay? So where he says here, with human love, you see, he said, one will scarcely die for a righteous man. Or perhaps you might die for a good man. For a good man, you might even dare to die. Now think about this. If you think about this honestly, in your own hearts, how many people would you be willing to die for? Okay? You might be willing to die for your spouse. I would imagine most of us would be willing to die for our spouses. But there are people in this world, I'm sure, that would, would probably rush to kill their spouse. <laughs> whatever, right? You know, I mean, just people who are so angry that maybe it's like an ex or whatever, someone who took them to the cleaners or, or ran off and cheated on somebody. And it's like, no, I'd, I'd rather kill that person. I wouldn't die for that person. I'd be the first in line to kill them. We would die for our children. We would die perhaps for our parents. Maybe even a close friend, right? But would you die for a stranger? I don't know. An enemy? Someone who hates you? Probably not. (laughs) How about someone who is in continual antagonism towards you? See, that's the point. Human love, we might die for a small subset of people our friends, our close friends, our family members, our loved ones. But when you start going outside of that, the circles, you know, when that circle gets wider and wider, you start talking about the neighbor down the street, the stranger across town, some dude in another state, some, you know, person in another country. Like, I don't even know that person. Why would I give my life for them? Now here, next to this kind of human love that we have, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that verb there, demonstrates, it literally means to stand next to. In other words, he's saying, okay, let's do a side-by-side comparison. Here's human love. Now here's the love of God. Human love says, you might die for someone who's good. You might die for someone who's righteous. But you're probably not going to die for an enemy. Here, but God shows his own love in that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. That means we were enemies with God. We hated him. We were against him. Yet he gives his son toward us to die for us. 
Human love would die for a loved one, but not an enemy. God's love has shown that Christ died when we were enemies. Enemies. It doesn't get any worse than being a sinner. Since we talked about R.C. Sproul just a few minutes ago, R.C. Sproul used to call sin cosmic treason against God. A sinner is one who is in rebellion (laughs) against the king, against his creator. Yet it is for us treasonous sinners that Christ died. And that's how the scriptures bear this out. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Or 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Or 1 John 4.9 and 10, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Scriptures bear this out all over the place, that Christ died for sinners, that Christ died for the ungodly, the just Christ for the unjust. That's us. So that is the amazing, incomprehensible love of God, that he would die for us, while we were at our worst state, that he would die for us as we were enemies, treasonous sinners against God. He dies for us. Now, as we get to verses 9 through 11, we're going to shift the argument a little bit here. Um, The argument in these verses takes on the form of a type of argument that Paul likes to use, where he says, if this is true, then so much more will this be true. That's the kind of argument you're going to see here in these verses. For example, if I were willing to show you some small token of kindness when we were strangers, then how much more will I be willing to show you kindness now that we're friends? That's the kind of argument Paul is going to use here in these three verses. So in verse 8, Paul tells us that Christ died for us when we were sinners. So now in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So there's that argument. It says he died for us when we were sinners. Now much more, now that we're no longer sinners, how much more now will we be saved from him by his life from the wrath to come? So if God is going to show you amazing and comprehensible love when you are at your worst, how much more then will God continue to lavish grace and blessing and love and goodness on you now that you have been justified By grace through faith. In other words, the hard part has already been done. Right? Bringing you from a grace, from a state of sin and wrath and judgment into a state of grace, that's the hard part. That part's already been done. So, how much more now will God continue to do more for you now that the hard part has already been done? Christ died for us. He he died in behalf of us when we were yet without strength. 
We were unable to save ourselves, so Christ saved us. We were unable to deal with our sin problem, so Christ dealt with our sin problem. We were unable to be at peace with God, so Christ secured our peace with God through his death and resurrection. Now, having done the hard work of justifying us before God, why wouldn't God continue to do more for us? I mean, think about that. How silly would it be God does the hard part? He takes us from a state of sin and misery, puts us into a state of grace, and then says, okay, see ya. Off you go. <laughs> do your thing. You know, I've done, I've done all the hard work. Now it's up to you. Okay, I've given you the leg up. Now go and you know do the best you can. I'll sit here and I'll see how well you do. That that's that's ungodlike. That is ungodlike. If we couldn't save ourselves in the first place, what makes you think that once we have been saved, we can stay saved? <laughs> right? I mean, we cannot stay saved without the help of the triune God. If you want, please just flip over to Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul, just a little background. The church in Galatia, now it's it's a question, it's a debate, because Galatia is not a city. It's a region in, in somewhere in Asia Minor. And it's we're not sure whether he wrote to the churches that were in the northern part or the southern part. And depending on which part he wrote to would depend on when the letter was written, whether it was earlier or a little bit later. But the point is, is that the, the situation in the churches of Galatia was very, very dire. Okay? They had, Paul had gone through there. He had, he had done his missionary work, his evangelistic work, and he started the churches there, and they were going strong. But then they were beset upon by a bunch of Judaizers, a bunch of Jewish Christians who said, in order to be a Christian, you first have to become a Jew. You have to observe the law. You have to be circumcised. And all these things. In other words, they were adding to the finished work of Christ. They were taking the pure gospel of Christ and they were adding to it. So then, you know, normally Paul's letters, he says, Hi, I'm Paul. I'm maybe with Timothy or Silas. And I'm writing to you people in Galatia, grace and peace to you. And then he usually says something kind like, you know, your faith has been heard throughout all the region. And I'm just so glad that everything's going well. And I want to write this letter to you. First thing after he says, hi, Paul, to the churches of Galatia, he says, you fools. <laughs> and he starts to rip into them because they were corrupting the gospel. Okay. Now, all of the letters that Paul writes have a different tone to them. Some of them are much more joyful because the church is, is doing well. Some of them, like Corinth, a lot of problems in Corinth, but they weren't messing with the gospel in Corinth. They had a lot of other problems. Galatia was messing with the gospel. And and Paul says, look, if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that I have given you, let him be accursed. And then he goes on in in chapter 3, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. I mean, again, he's, you fools. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by, or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfect by the flesh? In other words, you've been saved by grace through faith. Now do you think you're going to be sanctified by your works? No, you cannot add to the gospel. The gospel saves you. The gospel sanctifies you. You are also sanctified by faith. 
Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You can turn back to Romans. In other words, God did not send his only begotten son to die only to have us come under his wrath, right? If we have been justified by his blood, then so much more shall we be saved from God's wrath by his blood. That's what Paul says here in Romans 5. Note, too, that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. Now, of course, like I just mentioned there, the wrath that's spoken here, if we weren't already clear, is God's wrath. It is the wrath that was being revealed to the Gentiles in chapter 1. It is the wrath that is being stored up against the Jews in chapter 2. It is the wrath that is due to our sins. So through him, through Christ, we have been saved from that wrath. We've been justified by faith, and now we are saved from that wrath that is to come. So Christ, by dying on our behalf, took the full brunt of God's wrath for our sin. So the, the, the wrath that was due to our sin, Christ sort of you know, covered us, if, you know, and then it, he takes the full brunt of it. Okay? He takes the full brunt of our sin. He expands his argument even further in verse 10. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So whereas in verse 9, the emphasis was on the comparison of God's love while we were sinners and now that we are justified. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now that we're justified, Christ saves us from the wrath to come. Here, in verse 10, the emphasis is on the comparison between the death of Christ and the life of Christ. And again, it takes this form of a much more than argument. Okay? The death of Christ brought reconciliation to God's enemies. And that word there where it says reconciliation in verse 10, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son. That word reconciliation Uh, It means to return one into favor with another, to be received back into favor. And that's exactly what the death of Christ did for us. Last week, we looked at the concept of peace with God through our justification. So we were at enmity with God. We were enemies. Now we're at peace. We have been reconciled. We have been brought together. And that reconciliation was accomplished by or through the death of his son. And it was done when we were enemies, when we were at our worst. Now, again, Paul here is really hammering home this idea of when we were enemies. This is a theme that runs throughout this this section of chapter five. When we were enemies, when we were sinners, when we were ungodly. This is done to emphasize the fact that, while, that we did not initiate any of this. Okay, We did not look for this. We weren't seeking it. We weren't pursuing it. We didn't want it in any way. Again, think about Romans 1. 
We turned away. We, we reject the truth of God in our own righteousness, and then we go on into our sin. And of course, if we stay in that state, God gives us over to our sin. We're not seeking peace. This peace treaty between God and, and ungodly humanity was initiated by God, not by us. And it was initiated in the fact that he sent his son to die for us. Now, remember what we said earlier. That's the hard part. <laughs> Reconciling sinners to God is the hard part. It is something only God in Christ can do. It's not just the hard part. It's the impossible part. <laughs> it is the impossible part. Now, back in Romans 4.25, and we, we looked at this a couple weeks ago where he says, Christ, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So his death, you know, he was given over for our offenses. He died for our sins, but then he was raised for our justification. We talked about how just, you know, we seem to focus on the death of Christ for sinners and how that, you know, we receive forgiveness and justification through his death. That's, not, that's only half of it, right? It's not just that he died. If he had stayed dead, it would have been a sacrifice that was no good. It was the fact that he was resurrected from the dead that showed that, that God had accepted the atonement that Christ offered for us. It was to show his seal of approval. He raised him from the dead, showing that he approved it. And that's why he says we, he was raised for our justification. Now that Christ has been raised from the dead, how much more can his life save us? That's Paul's argument here in verse 10. He's been raised for our justification. Now that he's alive, how much more can his life save us? Romans 8.32, he, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He was delivered up for our, sacrifice, for our sins. He was delivered up to die for our sins. Now, how much more freely through him will he not give us all things? Or in John 14, 19, as Jesus speaks to the discouraged disciples in the upper room, he says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because, and because I live, you will live also. Christ was raised from the dead. He lives. Now, how much more that he's living will that life save us? Like I said before, it's interesting because we place such an emphasis on the death of Christ on behalf of sinners. And it's a wonderful, glorious truth. It's a truth we should trumpet. The death of Christ saves sinners. But we don't often speak about how the life of Christ benefits, benefits us so much more. That's his argument here. Now, so much, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus told his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled by his impending death because he told them that he goes on ahead to his father's house to prepare a place for us. So Christ's resurrection means he's now in heaven preparing a place for us. And what does he say? He says, then where I am, I will bring you also. The life of Christ benefits us. 
because of his resurrection and ascension now to the right hand of the Father, Jesus can send the Holy Spirit to us. He says, I have to go because if I don't go, I cannot send you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, lives in us and sanctifies us. I mean, if you think about it, what, you know, Jesus was called Emmanuel, right? And it's, like I said, it's a great name for a church. But the word Emmanuel means with, you know, God with us. And Jesus was God with us. He was God amongst us, right? When the disciples were with Jesus, they were with God. But the Holy Spirit is not just God with us. It's God in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us. And that couldn't happen unless Christ ascended. And he says, my father and I will send the spirit to you and he will be with you. He will teach you all things. He will lead you in all truth, etc., etc., etc. Jesus Christ, because of his life, now is our advocate before the father. He lives ever to make intercession for us. He is at the father's right hand advocating for us. He is our, our, our lawyer. Okay, that's what the word means. It's a, he is one who stands in our place. He makes intercession for us. His life saves us because when he returns, he will bring to completion everything that he has started in us. Everything that he, the Father, and the Spirit have been working in us will be brought to completion when Christ returns. So the death of Jesus reconciles us to God. The life of Jesus saves us. And then finally here, in verse 11, Paul brings the argument back around to the point he made earlier in the chapter in verses 2 and 3. So just as we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, just as we also glory or boast in our tribulation, so too in verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. It's the same word in all three verses. Glory, rejoice, and glory again here. Uh, it, it, again, it's that word boasting. It's that word boasting. And of course, the obvious contrast Paul wants to draw here is that we aren't to boast in our pedigree, our, you know, the status into which we were born. Our, our, you, know, you were born in, yeah. I mean, think about all the privileges we here in this country receive just by being born in this country. You don't have to be born rich. You don't have to be born in a mansion. Just being born in this country, you already have a leg up on most of the rest of the world. Okay? Then if you have the privilege of being born into a wealthy family, if you have the privilege of being born into a powerful family, okay, these are all things that are part of your pedigree. All right? But we don't boast in that. We don't boast in our performance. Okay? The only thing we boast from is we, we boast in the Lord. As the prophet Jeremiah tells us, he says, Thus says the Lord, let, them not, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this. Again, that's, this is the word boasting. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For these, in these I delight, says the Lord. So let not your boasting be in the things of this world. Let your boasting be in God and what he has done in us. So these are the benefits of justification. And it amazes me that the more that I study Romans, the more I look through this in the Bible, just how much God has blessed us, though we are infinitely undeserving. 
It just amazes me to see this. I mean, why should God go through such lengths to not only save wretched sinners such as us, but then to lavishly bless us above and beyond in Christ, right? I mean, I think of, go back to the, when we went through Ruth, and when Ruth goes to glean in Boaz's field, and Boaz takes a, a, you know, a liking to her, and he tells the reapers, says, as she goes out to reap, be careless in, as you're reaping the grain. Just leave stuff on the, on the ground for her to pick up, and she's picking all this. I mean, she comes home with this ginormous bushel of grain that she you know, gleaned that one day. And, of course, you know, Naomi sees this, and she's like, wow, <laughs> where did you glean today? That's the kind of a, you know, I mean, it's a picture of the above and beyond kindness that God shows to us in Christ. It's to emphasize that it's all of grace. It's to emphasize that it's all received through faith. It is to emphasize that it's all to lead to the praise and glory of God. So peeking ahead just a little bit uh, to Romans 11. when So Romans is broken up. When you get to the end of chapter 11, it's considered the end of the, the doctrinal section, the end of the the teaching session, then he goes into the practical section. But it's interesting because the idea is that doctrine is to lead to doxology, which is then to lead to uh, duty. Okay, so if you want to have three Ds there, you can alliterate it. Doctrine, doxology, duty. So teaching, praise, and then performance. But at the end of that chapter, he says, oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So after he has just concluded all of his teaching, he bursts out into praise of God. And then he goes on, now that you know these things, how shall you? Because then verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1 says, therefore, you know, through the abundant riches of you know, God, give yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, so on and so forth. But this idea of praise, it is all meant to lead to praise. Well, that's what I have for this week. Next week, we're going to look, we're going to finish chapter 5, going to look at verses 12 through 21. And just uh, the main question under consideration in this passage is, how can the actions of one man bring salvation to many? Okay, that's the question he's going to ask. How can the actions of one man bring salvation to many? And as we discuss this, we're also going to look at some of the implications that fall out of this passage. You're going to see concepts such as covenant and covenant headship. And we'll talk about those next week. We're going to see the concept of original sin and its transmission. And we're going to see the contrast here of in Christ and in Adam, because that's a theme that runs through those verses, in Christ and Adam. So that's where we'll be next week. We'll stop now.